Gary wanted me to tell you he sang along note for note, but I, I, don't, I don't think so. <laughs> Acts chapter 1, let's go there this morning. Thank you, Ronnie, for that reminder that God is great. We serve a great Savior. In case you have not heard, just to kind of give you a little bit of an update, uh, we've been collecting our Annie Armstrong offering this past month, which supports North American missions. Uh, to date so far, we have raised just over $7,100. And toward our $10,000 goal. So let me just encourage you, ask you to please, 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 if you have not given toward that offering, to prayerfully consider doing so. It is a very important offering. Considering what it does, our Annie Armstrong offering goes to support North American missionaries. Which when we think about missionaries, we typically think about those who would go overseas. But these are individuals who give their lives to serve and to reach people for Christ right here in North America. Doing things like planting churches in the inner cities of our darkest places in America. Places like New York and Boston and Chicago and out in the Midwest and Colorado. Places like this where there is not much when it comes to a gospel presence. Ministries like our campus ministries like that are on our college campuses. These are missionaries who are doing the hard work in places where there are not a lot of believers who are there to support them. So this offering steps in. And gives them the funding they need. And so please, 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 if you have not given to Annie Armstrong, please do so and help us to reach that goal. Last Sunday, we celebrated what is the greatest day in the history of the world, right? Easter Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And this morning, I want us to consider this question. What's next? I mean, if Jesus really did rise from the grave, which I believe he did. And if we really are bought by that salvation, if our salvation comes through the fact that he rose from the grave, which I believe most of us in here would say we have been bought by the blood of the lamb, then what's next for us? I mean, having fulfilled his mission on the cross when Jesus came, what is Christ's mission for us now? You see, the truth is that the resurrection was and is not the end of the mission, but simply the beginning of the mission. God's desire to reach this entire world and bring the world back to him. And so a good place for us to find the answer to that question of what's next comes in Acts chapter 1 when we see exactly what came next for the apostles. So let's start in verse 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 today. It says in verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus. Now this book, remember, if you do not know this, this book was intended to be part two to the Gospel of Luke. Luke was writing for a man named Theophilus who most likely was a wealthy believer who supported him as he traveled and did his research to write the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And so here is part two beginning. In the, in the first book, which is the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now Luke's gospels, or I'm, I'm sorry, but Acts is the only record we have that says that Jesus was with his apostles for specifically 40 days. And so for 40 days, Jesus was coming and going between heaven and earth and he continued to teach his disciples, continued to teach his followers, helping them to prepare for what was to come. You see, even though these apostles had spent some three years 
with Jesus, traveling with him, being taught by him, there were still so much to learn. There was still so much that they did not comprehend. I mean, if you remember on that first Easter morning, the disciples didn't even comprehend that Jesus was going to rise from the grave, did they? They were confused when there was an empty tomb. And so there was so much to learn. And even up to the point of his departure, at the end of this passage, we're going to read, they're still asking questions. So if you would think that anyone would be at the point of spiritual maturity, if you would think that anyone would have it figured out, wouldn't you think it would be these 11 guys who had spent three years on the road with Jesus? I mean, they had heard him teach. They listened to him unpack the Old Testament. They watched him feed thousands. They watched him calm storms. They saw him walk on water. They saw him even bring people back from the dead. They witnessed his prayer life. But yet, here are these apostles who still needed to learn who still needed to grow, who still had unanswered questions. And I say that as both an encouragement and as a warning to us, because if they had not arrived, then guess what? Neither have we. I say that as an encouragement to say this, that that if we are in our lives and we think about our spiritual walk and we think, man, I just feel like I should know more, just remember the apostles were with Jesus for three years in the flesh, and they still had questions. But at the same time, it reminds us that if they don't have it figured out, Well, the neater do we, that we all still should be striving to know more about our Savior. Let me ask a question to our parents here today. Have any of you ever had a child who was in the know-it-all stage? If they're in the room, don't look at them right now, because that's, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about. Maybe they never left the know-it-all stage. We have that in our house right now with two five-year-olds. They know everything. I argued with my son on the way to our Charlie's last night because he kept telling me it was one way, and I kept saying, son, you don't even drive a car. You don't know which way it is to the restaurant. One of our boys named Will, uh, Will is in the stage. He thinks that all he needs to do is try something one time, and he has got it figured out. For instance, a couple weeks back, my father-in-law, he's a big golfer, he decided to take Will out to a little putting range, you know, one of those putt-putt type places, teach him how to putt. He wanted to begin to teach him how to play golf. And so, and so he tried it out, and he, and he putted a few times, and he was doing well. And so then Will decided that he needed his own putter. And so my father-in-law took him to Edwin Watts and bought him his own putter, his own fancy putter, <laughs> as a matter of fact. And so then he took him to Quail Ridge the next day, and he took him out there. And, he, and, and mind you, he's five. He's never done this before. He takes him out there. He, he practiced for a little bit. And my son looks at him and says, Daddy Rick, that's what he calls him, Daddy Rick, he said, I, I don't need to practice putting anymore. I got this down. And he's like, wait a minute. Will, we just now started. No, Daddy Rick, now I need a chipper. I need a driver. I, I'm ready to move on. I've got this all figured out now. I've already tried this, you know. And, and no matter what we, we would say, you know what, he couldn't help but he couldn't make him realize, no, you don't have it all figured out. Well, guess what? Just like the disciples, we are people in progress. God is consistently working on us. And every single day, we need the direction of our Savior because we will never arrive at perfect spiritual maturity on this side of heaven. 
And so we constantly need to be growing. And when we open ourselves up to the Lord's wisdom, when we think about what James chapter 1 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, to pray with faith. When we do that, when we consistently seek the Lord, He will continually show us new things every single day. Let's pick it up in verse 4. It says, while they, And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which... He said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, we're going to come back to that in a minute. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And so here it is. Here is a moment of question. Just before Jesus ascends into heaven, the disciples asked him a question. Lord, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? I believe this was a misguided question. For three years, Jesus had been fighting against the people who wanted to make him an earthly king. He had been constantly scurrying away from the crowds. If you remember at those times in his ministry when big things would take place, he would suddenly disappear because he knew his calling was not to be an earthly king. But at this moment, I believe the disciples were looking for an earthly king. And this is why I believe that. It's the way that they asked the question. They said to him, Jesus, will you restore the kingdom of Israel? They weren't looking for a new kingdom. They weren't looking for a spiritual kingdom. They were looking for Jesus to restore David's kingdom. They wanted Jesus to make Israel great again. To put Israel back on the map. To run the Romans out and to set up an earthly throne. They wanted Jesus to bring their power back to them. And it's likely that in that question, they saw no room for anyone but themselves. No room for Greeks, or for Romans, or for Samaritans. Much less for you and I. They wanted it to be Israel's kingdom. For three years, Jesus had taught about the kingdom of God. Yet these men were looking for the kingdom of Israel. They wanted their kingdom back. And they still did not understand the fullness of what God was trying to do with his kingdom. And so the question we need to ask ourselves at this point is this, what kingdom are we pursuing? You see, if the disciples missed the point of God's kingdom and of his mission then we can be in danger of missing that point as well. We can be in danger of thinking that God's desire for us is something other than what the Bible teaches. I mean, what is God's desire for us? What is God's mission for us? What does God want for us? Is it happiness? Comfort? Just getting along? A good life for our families? Is it peace and security? Is it political clout? Is it a nice 401k? Those are all good things. Don't take me wrong. But I believe God's mission is something greater than that. I mean, isn't God's mission to see the world come to know Him? The world come to worship Him? To see Him as He truly is through salvation, through the Son? People of every nation, every color, 
every tribe and every tongue. And if that's the case, shouldn't that be our mission as well? Shouldn't we be pursuing the same thing God is pursuing? Even to the point of sacrifice? You see, if we're not careful, we can become more concerned with building up the kingdom of me. I can become concerned with building up my own kingdom, Jeff's earthly kingdom, instead of pursuing God's kingdom. And so Jesus' answer in this question, I believe, pushes against what they're trying to do here. He, he presses against them in the way he says this. Look in verse 7. He says, He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And first, So first he tells them, Your concern shouldn't be when I'm coming again. Instead, we should simply be motivated by the fact that he is coming Again, For instance, listen to what Jesus had to say in Luke chapter 17. Same author, remember this is the same author recording these words. Luke chapter 17 verse 20, it says this, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he, Jesus, answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst, in the midst of you. And so Jesus had already told his disciples, they were there in that moment, that the kingdom of God is not an earthly kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. That his reign is not going to be from an earthly throne, but from a heavenly throne. And his kingdom is present here in the hearts of his people. Now listen as Luke continues in verse 22. And Jesus said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. And so yes, there will come a day when Jesus' kingdom is coming to earth. And Jesus will set up an earthly throne. Don't miss the point here. Jesus is going to do that one day. There will be a day when God's throne comes to, comes to earth, when revelation is played out. But just as you cannot predict a bolt of lightning, we will not be able to predict that moment, nor should we try to. You know, over the course of history, especially over the course of about the last 150 years, it seems like numerous people have tried and failed to attempt when Jesus is going to come back. I mean, let me just give you some examples of times that people have tried to make a guess at it. For instance, Charles Taze Russell, who was the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, which I believe is a cult, predicted that in 1874, he said that Jesus had already returned in 1874. And he believed that there was a 40-year period where people could come to Christ, and that in 1914, it was all going to come to an end, and that was the end. Well, 1914 passed, and guess what didn't happen? It didn't come to an end. And so then, he's, then he changed his tune and began to say, well, Jesus is going to return sometime shortly thereafter, 1914. Well, that didn't happen either. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses began to predict many, many days. For instance, they predicted it in no less than 1920, 1921, 1925, 1932, 1935, 1951, 75, 80, and 86. Eventually, you think they just figure out that they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> but yet, they continue to do so. There was another man by the name of Edgar Wisenant who wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Take Place in 1988. Well, it didn't happen in 1988. 
And so then he wrote a book in 1989 that was called The Final Shout Rapture Report 1989, which he predicted it would take place then. I thought he should have called it 89 Reasons Why It Was Going to Take Place in 1989. But then that failed, and so he began to attempt again and again. There was another man named Harold Camping who was a Christian talk radio host. You might have heard of this one. In 2011, he predicted that Jesus was going to return on May 21st, 2011. Well, when that didn't happen, he went back and he said, oh, I messed up my calculations. It's actually going to be October 2011. Well, that didn't take place either. Now, why are people so dead set on trying to pinpoint when Jesus is going to return? You know, I really don't know the reason. I don't really get why we want to do something that God says can't be done. But Jesus answers the disciples' questions, not with a date. He says, it's not for you to even worry about. Don't even know, because we shouldn't be concerned about a date. Instead, we should be concerned about a mission. And so he gives them in this moment a promise of power and a worldwide mission. Let's look at the promise of power in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. If you remember back in the first few verses, he mentioned the Holy Spirit multiple times and said there's going to be a come a day where the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And here he says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power. It comes from the Greek word dynamis. In fact, that little stick that we call dynamite received its name because of its explosive power, which is what the word means in the Greek, an explosive Power. And so in other words, when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives at the point of salvation, not at a later date, but at the point of salvation, He enters with life-giving, life-changing, dynamic power. But what does the Holy Spirit do? You know, sometimes I believe that many of us think that the Holy Spirit is something like your thyroid or your pituitary gland. In other words, uh, you know it's there. You're glad you have it. You don't really want to lose it, but you don't really know what it does. Well, we can learn what the Holy Spirit does. If we look at John chapter 14, flip there if you would with me. John chapter 14, we're going to look at verses 16 through 17. And let's consider what Jesus said the role of the Holy Spirit is in our lives. Because I believe it will help us to understand how we can work in the Spirit to fulfill God's mission. Chapter 14, John 14, starting in verse 16. Verse 16, it says this. And I will ask the Father. This is talking about Jesus, talking about after he has, he has departed. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that's the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. And so first we know that the Holy Spirit is always with us, even the Spirit of truth. And so he is the Spirit of truth. He is the one that enlightens us to the truth about God, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so he always indwells us as believers in Christ. As baptized believers in Christ, we have received the Holy Spirit. We do not have to wait on a second coming of the Spirit like some might believe. Now skip down to verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And so it's the Spirit who enables us to understand Scripture. 
He will teach you all things. And He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so the Spirit teaches us, and then He also gives us spiritual recall, in a sense. He brings the Word to our memory at the moments when we most need it. And so the power of the Spirit that Jesus is talking about here at least amounts to this. It's more than this, I believe, but at least amounts to this. It's God's presence always with us. That's power right there. It's understanding the Word of God. The ability to understand the Word of God in a way that an unbeliever cannot. Have you ever read the Word of God and been in the presence of an unbeliever and they just say, I don't get it. And you look at them and think, how can you not get it? That's the presence of the Holy Spirit in you that allows you to understand that. But then it also is Holy Spirit recall of the Word of God when you need it. The Word is our power and the Spirit brings it to us. And so Christ has not left us alone. He was looking at the disciples and saying, look, I am leaving you, but I'm sending you the Spirit. He was not sending the JV team but instead something that's even better for us. I agree with what J.D. Greer said. He's a pastor. He said this. He said, the spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. He said, the spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. Oftentimes I hear someone say, they'll say, man, I just wish Jesus was right here with me. He is in the spirit already with you, and he never leaves you. The power of the Spirit consists of the ever-present person of God dwelling within your heart, within your soul, within your mind, giving you guidance, giving you wisdom, helping you to understand the Word, and bringing the Word back to you when you most need it. That is power, but the truth is you've got to plug into the power. You've got to be willing to use the power. Take this, for instance. Take this uh, drill right here. I can do a lot with this drill. I can make things. I can take things apart. I can fix things. But you know what? It doesn't work, does it? Why not? Because it has no power. But when you add the power to the equation, suddenly it becomes a tool that can be used. And for many of us as believers... Sometimes we live our lives unplugged from the power of God. That if we want to live in the power of the Spirit, we have to be willing to use the power of the Spirit. For instance, He will help you to remember the Word. But in order to remember the Word, we have to first read the Word. He cannot remind us of what we have not learned. He will help us to understand the Word. He will teach us the Word, but we've got to open the book. He will give you comfort and peace, but you have to be willing to rest in that comfort and peace and to trust in His hand. The Spirit gives you power. But Jesus isn't done yet. He says in the next part of verse 8, He says, You will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so he follows up this promise of power with the command to be his witnesses, with a mission to carry out his mission on this earth. Now, what does a witness do? I mean, really, what does a witness do? Declare the truth of what they've seen and heard, right? 
If a witness stood up in court, they are to tell the truth about what they saw and what they heard to the judge. And so our responsibility as a witness is to truthfully report what we have seen and heard about Jesus Christ. Now, I believe there's really three ways, at least three ways, that we can be a witness. First of all, we can be a witness through our character. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, it says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to, in all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so we can be a witness through a life of obedience, through a life of holiness. That the, as the lost world looks at us, they see something in us that is not like anyone else, and they say there is something about that person. That is one way of witnessing. We can also be a witness through our faith, through our trust in God. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is speaking on worry. Just one example. Verse 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? And then in verse 31, he says this, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so I believe that as we live our life in faith and in trust, I believe that is yet another way of testifying to the reality of faith in our hearts. That as we show the people around us that even in the midst of the hardest times, that we have a joy in Christ, that people can look at us and say, okay, that, their faith is real. But there's a third way that I believe that we must witness, and that is that we would witness through our words. In Romans chapter 10, verse 14, it says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, without someone witnessing? Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, most of us in this room probably struggle to some extent with this one, with knowing how to get into a conversation about our faith with someone else and knowing what to say and being totally comfortable with talking about salvation with another person. And so many times we can fall back on those other things and think, well, I'm just going to be a witness on my character. I'll just be a witness on my faith. But the truth is you can't lead someone to Christ on action alone. We cannot win someone to Jesus simply on our actions. Now, don't get me wrong. Words without action will not work. But actions without words won't work either. Considering this example, imagine that I have a neighbor who is not a Christian. And imagine that I decide that I'm going to try to lead that neighbor to Christ solely based upon my actions. I want to be the, the, the most obedient Christian I can in front of their eyes in hopes that it will lead them to Jesus. Now let's imagine that I then try to be as hospitable as I can to them as I possibly can. I invite them over for dinner. I talk to them all the time. And then one day, let's say that I notice that their, the guy's lawnmower doesn't work very well. And so I think to myself, well, here's an opportunity. I'll begin to loan him my lawnmower. And I offer to him, I say, hey, you can use my lawnmower anytime you want free of charge. Now let's imagine that he takes me up on the offer and he begins to borrow my lawnmower and he begins to cut his grass and then eventually because he's using it so much it breaks. 
but I don't complain about it. I just go fix it, and I continue to let him borrow my stuff. At every turn, I try to do everything I possibly can to act like Jesus. But then one day he dies. Now imagine that in that moment that he died, I had never spoken the words of the gospel to him. I had never spoken to him about the salvation that Christ had given. Do you know what my actions preach to him? They preach that Christians are good people who do good things for their neighbors. They preach that salvation and justification comes through good actions and good works alone. They preach that kindness and generosity and morality are what make you a Christian. And my actions would have preached something, but it would have been, wouldn't have been the gospel of Christ. At some point, we have to be willing to be a witness with our words. Because it is words that bring people to Jesus. Christ called us here to be witnesses. And he says here in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, in the ends of the earth. And so he gives this ever-widening circle of influence. I believe part of that was to remind the disciples that he did not intend them to plant their roots in Jerusalem and never to move. But instead to take the gospel to the world. Jesus never intended us for us to simply camp out and wait for the world to come to us. But instead for us to go to the world. Not far from my house there's a church or at least I never even really knew it was a church until I met someone who attended this church. And the reason why I didn't know this was a church is because they have no sign in front of it. It's just a building. It seems pretty well kept. And I always thought, well, man, that kind of looks like a church. It looks like a lighthouse, actually. And I thought, well, it looks like a church building, the way it's all laid out. And there's a parking lot and all this kind of stuff. And then I met this person who attended this church, and I asked them, you know, why do you not have a sign in front of your church? I thought, well, maybe it... Who knows? Maybe they couldn't afford one. Maybe a car drove through and they never replaced it, something like that. I thought it was some simple answer like that. And then the, their answer was this. They said, well, our pastor doesn't believe that we need a sign in front of our church because if God wanted people to find this church, they simply would. If God wanted people to find this church, they'll just find it. He'll lead them here. And I think that's exactly how many times we live out our faith. If someone wants to know about Jesus, well, they'll just ask me. My life's an open book. They can just come and ask me. But that's not the type of witness Christ called us to be. He called us to do just what he did, to seek out the lost, to go to the hurting, to go to the helpless, and the power of the Spirit with the life-giving words of the gospel. He called us to have a holy discontent with this world, to see that there is something wrong that only Jesus can fix, to have his very heartbeat, which we're told in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, God's heartbeat is this, is that, not, that he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach penance. This morning I want to close with a video. It's a video of a, um, of a, of a family that actually is one of our families that's supported by the Annie Armstrong offering. But I don't want you to watch this video simply thinking I'm wanting you to give money to the Andrew Armstrong offering. I hope that you will. But I want you to see the example of their life and what this mom, this wife in this video calls a holy discontent in her life where she realized that God was calling her family to something more. Where God was calling her family to be a witness in a very dark place. Check this video out. 
So Kelly and I lived in Granbury, Texas, and life was really great. We had four kids, and God began to do a work in us. And the only way that we can really describe what that was, was a holy discontent. God has something out there beyond what we were doing, beyond who we were, that he was gonna stretch us and, and change us. I can remember our first visit to Fort Collins. We walked through this neighborhood and we prayed through the streets of this neighborhood and there was something that we were drawn to in this specific place. The suicide rate in Colorado is one of the highest in the country. We see the beauty around us. They're looking for hope and they're looking for something more than what they have and they get here and they don't find it. So we began to do what we knew we were called to do, which is what we're all called to do. We began to love our neighbors and to really seek to know them and allow them to know us. The past two and a half years of our lives have been by far the most difficult we've ever lived. We left behind our friends. We took our kids off of their travel sports teams. We took them out of the things that were the most important to them. And there have even been times when we've asked ourselves the question, is the battle that we're facing as a family worth the souls of the people here? There is pain and yet there is fruit um, within this journey because we have seen people that before were spiritually dead that have come to life. The adventure camp that we're putting on right now, we wouldn't be able to put on without financial support from the Annie Armstrong offering. And we are able to engage in ministry. But there's one thing that they're gonna know, and that's that one day they went to a park and they played a lot of fun games. And someone stood up in front of them and said, I love you, that you can be strong in the Lord. And those sweet kids stood up and yelled it so loud today, I am strong in the Lord. And it was the sweetest thing to my ears. And it makes all the hard worth it. Did you hear it? A holy discontent. Because she realized God had called her family to be a witness to do something more than just the regular routine. This morning I ask you this, is there a holy discontent in your life? Is there something that's nagging on you that God is saying that he is calling you to something? To be a witness in some way. Maybe there's a family that you know. Maybe it's in your own family. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's something crazy like them to move somewhere else because you realize God has called you to be on mission. And he's put something on your heart. I want you to listen to the last words of this passage. In verse 9, it says, When he had said these things, they were looking on. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taking up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so based on, if you were to read the rest of the book of Acts, you know what I think these disciples took from those words? Stop looking into heaven and get to work. Because the next thing you see is they begin to go out and to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of their world. And that's what God's called us to do.
to be people who take the gospel in the power of the Spirit, knowing that that is the only thing that can change lives, the only thing that can change our world. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to this time this morning, this time of invitation, God, I know that that you deal in our hearts in a multitude of ways. God, I know that there are those in this room who are believers in Christ, and and they realize in this moment, God, that that maybe there is some point of disobedience in their life that is preventing them from being a witness. Maybe it's a besetting sin. Maybe it's an anxiety they have about sharing their faith. Maybe it's a lack of trust. Maybe it's thinking that they don't know enough. Father, I pray that today would be a day when they would make that decision to say, I will live in the power of the Spirit and I will be a witness in my Jerusalem, in my hometown, in my Judea and Samaria, here in my country. God, I will look for ways to be a witness, to make disciples, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Father, I pray that today would be a day of recommitment for those believers in this room who feel that, who sense that, that holy discontent in their life and realize that you are calling them to something more. But Father, in this room, there might be those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that today would be that day that they would place their faith and trust in Jesus. that they would understand that Jesus came not just to leave an empty tomb, but to fill their hearts, to become the Lord, the Master, the Savior of their life. Father, I pray that today would be that day they would walk this aisle and want to know how they can become a Christian, how they can turn their life over to you and receive eternal life. Father, move in this time of invitation. It's in Christ's name we do pray. We stand as we sing.